good morning again. <clears throat> At some point, spring is going to come. I believe it. Do you? All right. So we should talk about something, I think. Let's talk about the slap heard around the world. How about that? If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, other than the war in the Ukraine, it's probably been the second most, uh, I don't know if it's newsworthy, but the newsworthy thing that you've seen on the news or on your social media feeds this last week. Before we get to the slap, can I just set some context for it though first? So the Oscars are this interesting thing where literally millions and millions and millions of dollars are spent to make a relatively small group of people as attractive as possible so that they could be paraded out in, other, in front of others so that others can look at them and judge their appearance. It's this bizarre situation. And then these very same people who spend all this money to look a certain way and all that stuff, they sit down and then they subject themselves to mock and jokes, right? Judgment, all for the sake of getting a laugh. And then, of course, you know, the whole premise of the Oscars themselves are their performances are being judged. And so the other night it went from just judging people's performances or judging people's appearance to judging people's actions. And so Chris Rock, comedian, was up doing a monologue. And uh, as part of that monologue, he made an offhand joke about uh, a woman named uh, Jada Smith. And in the midst of that joke... Uh, that did not go over well, her husband got up, walked onto the Oscars platform, and slapped Chris Rock across the face, and then turned around and sat back down. Then there was a little profanity-laced exchange that was loud, that was heard. So, really quick, what world do we live in <laughs> where you can look at what just happened there and not see privilege being screened? The idea that you can just walk up to somebody who said something you didn't like, I'm not defending what was said, physically assault them, walk back to your seat, and a few minutes later, go stand up to a standing ovation and receive an award. And then go to after parties and have a good time. With no, okay, if that doesn't scream privilege, I don't know what does. I don't know what does. Okay. Now, watch what I just did. I just shared with you my thoughts about what happened. My judgment of a person's actions and some inactions, I made a judgment, did I not? I'm judging the actions of Will Smith in that moment. In doing so, what happens is I put myself in the judgment seat. The judgment seat. I passed a judgment on a person or a situation. That's the judgment seat. So in our series in Lent, uh, 140, one church, 40 days on our journey towards Easter, uh, we've been going through some of, I think, some of the tougher sayings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, in a few weeks, we're going to gather together for Good Friday, as well as Easter Sunday. On your seats, you've got those invitations. There's more out in the foyer if you'd like to grab some more to give away. That'd be fantastic. There, uh, but in this series, what we've done is we've talked about some of the harder sayings. And this one today is no exception. I want you to look at it on the screen, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Do not judge, 
so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but don't notice the log in your own? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. So the judgment seat, the judgment seat, is actually spoken about several times in Scripture. In Romans 14.10, Paul says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Or 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of, of Christ, so that each of us might receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So we will all, every single one of us, will appear before God at some point. And we will be judged. I mean, that's the literal word. We will be judged. We'll be evaluated for good or bad. Our character, our posture towards other people how we treat the poor, how we've controlled our, our tongues, our speech, our attitudes. But as you read this particular passage in the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, that's not really the question. <laughs> really, the, ultimately, the question when you look at this passage of Scripture is, who gets to sit in the judgment seat? That's the question. Who gets to sit in the judgment seat? Who gets to decide? Do I get to be the person that decides? Do you get to be the person that decides? Who gets to decide when someone's not living right? Or when somebody's headed down a wrong path? Or who gets to decide if somebody has sin in their life that needs to be addressed, that's hindering them? Who gets to sit in the seat of judgment? The answer is really simple. But it's not simple. Our culture, even our culture as a church, tends to hover between the idea that nobody but God can judge us, right? God's the ultimate judge. But then we kind of also like to reserve the right to be the judge every once in a while. Can we be honest? We also want to sit in the seat. You see it all the time. We want to judge another's actions or inactions. We want to judge a person's words or their silence, or give a judgment on something like the slap, right? But to do so, we do that not wanting others to question our actions. We don't want other people to question our decisions. Or there's the cop-out. I'm not perfect, so who am I to judge? Who am I to judge somebody else's actions? And look at my own life. Okay. We hold at arm's length. We as Christians probably should desire for something deeper, but we do. We hold at arm's length the very people who could speak into our lives while we simultaneously peruse other people's lives and we make judgments all the time, all the time. Now, judging other people and pushing back against people judging us, that's nothing new or Jesus wouldn't have brought this up. This wouldn't have been a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' command is not a call to be harsher in our judgment, and it's also not this idea of just throwing up your hands and pull the you do you, I'll do me, we'll just kind of stay out of each other's space kind of business. That's not what he's talking about here either. I think what this is is actually a call for us maybe to see one another 
and even ourselves a little bit differently. A little differently. And I think the first step is to understand it's a command not to judge. It's a command in context. It's a contextual command. Okay, so I want you to listen to those first two verses again. Jesus says, do not judge, comma, so that you may not be judged, period. That's the first verse. Do not judge so that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. The second part of that clarifies the first part. Are you following that? It's not a command not to use judgment. It's not a command not to judge. It's more commanding us in a nutshell, listen, you ought to think twice before you do. You ought to examine your own life before you do. Another translation says this, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, or criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. It's a command with a contextual meaning. Are you willing, are you and I willing to be examined in the same way that we would examine others? That changes things, doesn't it? Listen, there's a hundred reasons not to like what I just said. I don't even like what I just said, okay? We throw around this judge not verse and interpret it to mean that people shouldn't tell us that we're wrong. What right do you have to tell me? that I'm wrong. At the same time, sin is horrible. Sin is sin. And sin leads to brokenness. It leads to pain and struggle and suffering. Sin leads to heartache. It leads to worse. Sin leads to war and refugees. Sin leads to uh, devastation, racism. It starts wars. It breaks promises. It devastates. It destroys. That's what sin does. That's our problem. We have a sin problem. If we make statements like, yeah, I know the Bible says, whatever, fill in the blank. I know the Bible says you shouldn't, thou shalt not do this, but we're not supposed to judge, so I'm not going to confront that person on what they did. We fall into a trap if that's our mindset. We don't pass judgment. I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. We don't pass judgment. We don't condemn other people for their sin, but we don't ignore sin either. We have a responsibility to identify sin at times. It's kind of sticky, isn't it? Aren't you excited? This is so fun. Wouldn't you want to be the one up here talking about this? Something that is harming somebody and potentially other people. Does this make anybody else feel uncomfortable? That's why it's really, really important to understand that verse 2 turns verse 1 into a command that actually urges compassion and grace because it's a misunderstood command. It's a very, very misunderstood command. Um, if you read scripture at all, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus' words are very specific. He does not waste words. He uses them very, very intentionally. And evidently, there were some people whose metric for judgment was like on a microscopic level, okay? Uh, it was common practice in Jesus' day for those with power and authority, particularly religious authority, 
to point out the shortcomings of others. In fact, it was pretty advantageous if you were in a position of power to point out the shortcomings of others, and not just that, but pass laws and put practices and policies in place so that the shortcomings of others became much more obvious. It's a very convenient tactic if you don't want people to look at your shortcomings. It's very much a diversion to be able to point out even the minuscule shortcomings of other people and say, don't you feel horrible right now that you don't measure up to God's expectations like I do? Okay. This is kind of what Jesus is talking about in the midst of what he's sharing in the Sermon on the Mount. It's exactly what most religious leaders did in Jesus' day. I want you to think about it. Think about this speck in the eye business. If I'm going to see a speck of dust in your eye, does that not mean that I'm intentionally looking for it? That'd be like I'm just walking along, I'm just doing my thing, I'm like, Debbie, I can see it from here. The speck in your eye. Don't you feel horrible for that up here as I pontificate down on you? You're intentionally getting up close. You're looking for something to call out. If you see a speck in somebody's eye, you're all up in somebody's business. That's what that looks like. And that's exactly what was going on in this situation. This is not passive judgment that Jesus is talking about. This is somebody intentionally deciding, I need to find somebody to judge. I need to find somebody to judge because in doing that judging, it elevates me. If I can see how some are weak, I give the appearance of being strong. And Jesus was all about dismantling that, tearing that down. You have self-professed eye inspectors with a half a forest worth of faults in their own. They're scrolling through the profiles. They're browsing through the pics. They're screenshotting the comments, searching for all those gotcha moments, okay? All the while denying what others might find if they did the same thing to them, okay? Can we be vulnerable for a minute? Everybody gets something in their eye. <laughs> I'm not justifying it, but, it, but everybody does get something in their eye from time to time. If you look hard enough, if you look hard enough in my life, you're going to find some area of life where I've said something I shouldn't have said. You're going you're to look in my life and you're going to, man, Richard got a bad attitude about that situation. Or, man, look at the speck in Rich's eye. He can't seem to stick to a diet or whatever. I, I can identify my own specs, obviously. But, <laughs> but, but any, you can look. You, you can look and find the specks in anybody's life. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. My father-in-law and I, he's an amazing man. He and I were having a conversation. This was, man, 20 years ago maybe. And um, we were just having kids and I was feeling the pressure of raising a family now. And I've always admired her family. Her dad and her mom were just incredible people and sweet and nice. <laughs> and... I was feeling a little, I was confiding in him because I was, I was a little, I, had, I was self-conscious about my family. My family had rough edges. My family, if my family were in this room, you would know it. Uh, I mean, they, they were just, that was just them, and, and that's okay. But I, compared to her family, everything had its place, and everything was nice, and they were so churchy, and all this other stuff. And I was sharing with him a little bit, and this is what he said to me. It was the smartest thing I've ever heard. He laughed first, and then he said, Rich, 
every family is dysfunctional. There's only a few of them that will admit it. Listen, there are faults, there are specks, there are things that you can see if you look for them. If you look for them. If you take personal offense that your family's dysfunctional, don't ask your friends to ask, don't, don't like, it'll be a painful experience. Listen, people get specks in their eyes. It happens. Now, whether it's a speck or, or a log, we all get them. Because of that, we don't get to sit in the seat of judgment. This seat right here is reserved for somebody else. Or is it? This is kind of where we get off the rails a little bit when it comes to our own personal responsibilities as members of the body of Jesus Christ. This church, this year, is focusing on what does it mean to be one? What does it mean to be one? Jesus is not telling us not to use judgment or discernment. He's not telling us, nope, don't identify sin. In fact, if you fast forward to verses 15 and 16, Jesus warns his followers. He says, beware of false prophets. You'll know they're false prophets because of their fruit or lack of fruit because of their actions, because of their words. And so he's, he's essentially asking us, use judgment. Judge somebody on whether or not they're a true or a false prophet based on the fruit of their life. So Jesus is essentially turning what he just said around a little bit. Then you can go on. Uh, John uh, 7.24 says, stop judging appearance, but instead judge correctly. Okay, you can't even get around that one. He's literally telling his followers to judge. And there are correct and incorrect ways to do that. The incorrect being hypocritical and forgiving, self-righteous judgment. And I think that's the key in all of this. When Jesus is saying, do not judge, lest you be judged, he's speaking to the problem of hypocrisy. He's speaking to the problem of condemnation. So what's the right form of judgment then? If you and I evidently sometimes sit in this seat? How do we do that? What does that look like? But let me make this even more frustrating. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church in Corinth, totally put them on blast. He dropped the hammer on them because they'd become complacent in one another's sin. That's why. He was writing to them because not only were they sinning, they were actually condoning one another's sin. In fact, there was a leader in the church, a man in the church, who was having an affair with another man's wife. And the people in the church were like, it happens. And this was, and Paul has words for that. This is what he says. He says, you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into, listen closely, mourning? Shouldn't you have gone into mourning? He was absolutely appalled that they cared so little about one another's spiritual health that they overlooked things that were so devastating. And there it is, mourning over the fact that another believer is caught in sin. I think there's a really important thing to understand there. And maybe why this is such a misunderstood command in this section of scripture. And it's this, it's a relational command. The instructions are clear. He says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. 
Listen, the one who sits in the judgment seat desires to be judged as well. That's who sits in the seat. The one who desires to be judged as well. Lent is a time of reflection. It's a time for repentance. It's a time uh, to see where maybe we've fallen short in some areas. It's a time for us to move deeper with Christ. It's a season of removing plank is what it is. The challenge in this text is that we can be so busy looking for the specks in the eyes of others that we miss what's going on in our own life. We overlook. I'm guilty of it. Overlooking the attitude maybe that I have, the thought that I have. Listen, removing a plank from your eye requires a willingness to be still, first of all. It requires a willingness to allow yourself to be examined if you want that out of your life. Will I let myself be examined? And will I allow somebody to help me gently remove it from my life? That probably sounds like accountability. It sounds like bringing yourself kind of under the relationship that you might have with others so they can speak hard things into your life. It may mean being teachable instead of always having to be the one that's teaching. Maybe becoming, un- becoming comfortable with discomfort. You may need to go to therapy, okay? Uh, spiritual disciplines, whatever it is, other ways that the Spirit wants to refine us. But the qualifier, the qualifier for speaking truth, the qualifier for even correctional judgment into the life of somebody else is the willingness to live and examine life yourself. To acknowledge that there is only one person who has the full right to sit in the seat of judgment. There's only one. And what I can tell you today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is you want Jesus in this chair. Okay? (laughs) You want Jesus in the judgment seat. At the very least, we also need to recognize that Jesus tends to work through people, (laughs) which is so frustrating. I wish Jesus would just show up in the judgment seat and just be there, because I know he'd do it right. But instead, he does this frustrating thing where he actually wants to do that through us. He wants us to help one another when we're caught in behaviors and caught in actions that are taking us down the wrong way. How do we respond to those situations? At the very least, the person that sits in that chair has to be somebody who understands and has experienced the compassion of Jesus while they themselves are acknowledging their own sin sickness. They're sick in their sin. And yet they're experiencing compassion from the one sitting in the seat. What if, what if sitting in the judgment seat looks less like this? Right? And instead, it looks a little bit more like this. Ben does not know what I'm about to say. Hey, thanks for sitting down and talking to me. I appreciate it. Um, I just want you to know, man, I love you. I love your wife. I love your family. You guys are awesome. And uh, 
I appreciate you. I've watched you grow, and it's pretty amazing. And I want you to know, I'm, there's something I want to talk to you about, but I want you also to know that I'm not perfect. Like, there's things in my life, and the thing I want to talk to you about is something that I've had to wrestle through in my own life. And I'm so grateful for these people over here who spoke into my life and were willing to say, Rich, you know, there's some stuff going on that you need to think about. And so I want you to know I'm coming from a place of love. I, I, I love you, and I want what's best for you. I want you to succeed as a follower of Jesus. And so I kind of want to ask you, how are you processing this? Whatever it is, put whatever you want to think about Ben on that line. <laughs> how are you processing this right now? And, and I, again, I'm not here to shame you or anything, but I just want you to know, if you sat down and talked to Shelly, she would be able to tell you the devastation that occurred in my life because I wasn't willing to wrestle with that thing. And I want you to know, too, because I love you, I'm, I'll walk with you. If you need somebody to be an accountability partner with, if you need somebody who's willing to, to just walk alongside with, be your 3 a.m. friend, anything going on in your life, you have the right to call me at 3 a.m., and I'll answer the phone. But... I just love you enough that I don't want to see you go down that road. And I, I will walk with you to figure out how do we pull this back in and do what needs to be done. Okay. All right. Give Ben a hand. He didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> okay, so there's a couple things that I've learned. You can't control how that person responds in that situation. They may immediately be like, hey man, who, where do you get off? Who do you think you are? Do you not know the things I know about you? And you're, you have the gall to talk to me about this? You, you have no control other than you can pray that the spirit is working in that person's life to give them ears to hear and that you are being as humble and self deflecting as, as you possibly can be in that moment. If you are aching to sit in the judgment seat, this ain't your chair. <laughs> this is not something you clamor for. If you're sitting here listening to this message and you're thinking, yeah, there's something I need to go sit down and I, I'm going to write it out. There's three things I'm going to confirm. Listen, do not do that thing. This is not your chair. This chair is reserved for whoever is willing to be judged in the same way to be called to account for anything even a speck in your own eyes. And you can't control how somebody might respond, but if somebody came to me, and I'm not, I hope you understand, I'm not perfect at this, okay? I, I, got, I had the opportunity to think through what I was going to say before I said that. But if somebody came to me the way I came to Ben in that situation, I kind of think that that looks like something that we've been talking about for about a year now. That looks like love and patience. That looks like goodness and kindness and gentleness. That looks like self-control. That looks like speaking the truth in love. That looks redemptive. That looks like reconciliation. That looks like real life. And here's the reality. There are people that don't want real life. There will be people that do not want 
to experience that. Because it's hard. What I just did with Ben, if that were a real situation, that is a true test of our friendship, isn't it? I just called him out, didn't I? If you want to call it calling somebody out, or I expressed to him very deep appreciation and love for who he is as a human being and a fellow image bearer of Jesus Christ. I did it because I love him. Listen, not everybody wants that. It is a test of relationship and friendship. Some people seek justification in their friends when they don't find it. They're strained. They're strained. But if you have ever been sin sick, your motive is compassion because you never want to see somebody else get to where you've been. Have you ever been physically sick over your own sin? I have. Where you just, you, you don't want anything more than just to be clean. I just want to be clean. I'm so sick in my sin. This season of Lent is a time to repent, reflect, and remember. God does not leave us in our mess. Instead, he enters into it. See, it's the person who knows for themselves the compassion of Jesus Christ that has the ability not just to point the speck out, but actually have the grace and compassion and the, the fruit to help that person remove that speck. Pointing a speck out is lazy business. Helping somebody get over that is where the real stuff happens. In fact, this seat belongs to the one who would willingly give that seat up. That's who it belongs to. The judgment seat belongs to the one who would willingly give it up. It belongs to the one who would allow themselves to be judged or even take judgment on behalf of somebody else. That's the gospel. That we have one who would take our judgment upon himself in our place. And in the midst of it all, asks us to pull up another chair to a table. I want to just offer this prayer of thanksgiving, if that's okay with you, as we begin to approach communion today. Jesus, bread of life and the cup of salvation. Despite lack of faith and obedience, you again renew the invitation to a seat at your table. Satisfy us in ways we cannot understand, but desperately need. For your faithfulness, we give you thanks. God, you provide the bread of heaven to feed your church. You've invited us to life eternal. For your generosity, we give you thanks. And Holy Spirit, our comforter and corrector, you gather us as one. Teach us to see our sin and receive our Savior. For your prayers, we give you thanks. Now, as we sit at your table once again, we pray we would be satisfied and that you would be satisfied in our accepting the invitation. Amen. As you prepare the elements today that you receive, I want to encourage you to take that bread out at this point.
I do want to take this moment to remind us. The things that Jesus talked about and the things that he, ta- that he taught were difficult for quite a few people to accept. Uh, the scripture says this, at this many of his disciples turned away and no longer accompanied him. Jesus asked the twelve, do you also want to leave? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're God's holy one. Jesus' question was not a challenge to leave. It was actually an invitation to pull up a chair, to pull up a seat that he offers to us and to allow him to be our nourishment, to feed us. So if you're willing today, I want to encourage you to pull up that seat and eat yourself. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and then he said, this is my body that is for you. Do this as a means of remembering me. In the same manner, he took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, in your mercy, you meet us exactly where we are. And Father, uh, thank you for saving us. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the body of Christ that we are so privileged to be a part of. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Father, this is a hard message for me to preach uh, just because there's a lot of self-evaluation that I've done uh, this last week in regards to what just came out of my mouth. And I just recognize that uh, I probably don't just have one speck. I got a lot of specks, maybe even a log or two. So I just pray that you would help me to continuously put myself in front of that seat so that you might show me and bring people into my life as well, Father, who truly want to speak the truth into my life so that I might do everything that you've asked me to do and called me to do. I trust your spirit, Father, today to do that. I trust that for all of us as your church. In Jesus' name, amen.
run to you, Father, remind us that we're not alone, 
that you make your presence known to us every day, that your Holy Spirit, Father, is at work in this place and in our hearts and in our lives and help us just to continue to walk in step of the Spirit and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here. Would you thank Hannah for being here as well and welcome her. And I want to remind you, Hannah will be out there, but there's cupcakes. There's cupcakes in the community space, so make sure you head over in that direction. Thanks.